Welcome to Chasing Hermes, the pursuit of Mercury, with your hosts, Sean and Jason. A warm welcome to all of our listeners. We are back with another episode of Chasing Hermes. I am, as always, your host, Jason. And I am Sean. Good to be here, Jason. You know, we've been doing the show now, I believe, for almost exactly one year. We've covered a lot of ground, I think. I think pretty much uh, a year ago on this date, we were pretty much recording our very first episode. And I just want to say what an amazing year this has been. (laughs) I think this podcast has really taken off bigger than I expected. And I wanted to thank everybody who's been writing in lately with your praise and your amazing feedback. And uh, to those of you who still haven't received any answers, they are coming. And we will try to answer every mail as they come in. So thank you, everybody, for your continued support. Yeah, I'd say, you know, a year ago, I may have had some doubts as to how long we could keep this up. And if we'd be able to keep recording, I think we've been able to maintain enough interest and enough momentum. And it's really thanks to our fans. Thanks to you guys. It keeps us motivated to record the show. So without further ado, shall we move on in our journey of chasing Hermes? Yeah, absolutely. Where were we last time that we met? We were in ancient Egypt, I believe, Ah, drawing circles in the sand with bones carved with magical symbols. That's right. You know what? I really enjoyed that time. And I was wondering, you know, all this magic in ancient Egypt, it didn't die with the Egyptians, did it? No, not at all. It continued on through the Greco-Roman Empire and and throughout our journey in the next few podcasts, I think we'll find that it continues to this very day. Absolutely. You know, I'm really looking forward to hearing you explain more about what happened in the Greco-Roman world as the Egyptian empires were on the decline and the Greek culture was starting to climb up in importance in the uh, ancient Near East. You know, as we know about the Greek and the Roman cultures, they were prime ready for this type of magical explosion, if you will, or esoteric infusion with their culture. Their pagan origins were already primed to receive the influence from a different pantheon, you know, the Egyptian pantheon. So it was quite natural for them during that commingling time in Egypt when the Greco-Roman Empire uh, spread throughout Egypt and, and formed in Alexandria. The Greeks and the Romans easily adopted the Egyptian pantheons as just another set of the gods. And they set out often to draw parallels, you know, so you see them drawing the parallels, for instance, between Thoth and Hermes and Mercury, and they viewed those all as faces of one deity. Yeah, that would have come very natural to them because the ancient Greeks, a lot of the scholars and academics of the time they would all have been traveling to Egypt and training with old Egyptian priests, right? And mm-hmm. and the the Greek culture had really assimilated all of that which was Egyptian. Yeah. And while I think the, the Greeks had the notion that since they had conquered Egypt, um, they were sort of the new era and they were a little bit more civilized than the Egyptians, but they still held the old Egyptian beliefs and values and what we might want to call philosophy, for the lack of a better word, in very high esteem and and high regard. 
Yes, I, I agree. And in fact, it was almost with a high degree of curiosity. You oh, know, yeah. The, the Greeks were very much inspired and curious about the magic of the priests of Egypt mm. and about their magical rites and, and the powers that they had. And so, of course, they viewed it through their own philosophical minds of the pre-Socratics and the Socratic philosophers of the day. But while they were trying to interpret the nature and the origin of Egyptian magic, we see how, in parallel, the influence of that Egyptian culture, that Egyptian magical culture, spread throughout the folk religions of the day and then up into the greater mysteries of ancient Greece. You know, in ancient Egypt, they really didn't have philosophy the way we think of it today. They didn't have dialectics. They didn't have the Socratic method of teaching. They didn't have scholars that you could challenge. You know, Mm -hmm. they didn't think and ponder about things. Things are very much set in stone, you know, and... (laughs) Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, literally. Um, whereas in Greece, it was very flexible, and the student was almost meant to surpass and and challenge the master and come up with his own philosophy. It was yeah. not so much about finding dogma as it was about your own search for the truth. Right. They were always in search for higher truth, higher learning, and I believe that they used that knowledge and, and philosophy and that philosophical perspective to view the magic of Egypt. But we should keep in mind, as, as we'll talk about, is that that didn't always paint magic in a favorable light when they no. began to see how magic affected the society. So, But, you know, what we're going to see is that through the influence of Egypt and through the own folk religions of ancient Greece, there was a widespread practice of magic, or at least what we would today call magic, right? They had um, you know, magical initiations into greater mysteries uh, in order to, you know, gain favor of the gods and powers from the gods. There, much like in Egypt, the ancient Greeks had a number of what was found to be cursed tablets, right? All these papyri that was found with curses and magical spells in order to control various enemies, right? They had magical tablets of healing, of exorcism. They performed vast divinations. Anything from spells and and rites to win the hearts of women and and gain romantic relationships to calming kings and masters. I mean, the list goes on and on. I'm going to stop saying ooh, because otherwise I'll say it all the time. (laughs) Ooh, ah, yes. Uh, But my favorite, of course, is is their rites for entering into intimacy with the supreme god. Oh, that kind of intimacy. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of intimacy. Ooh. Right, some of the the first rites of theurgy or becoming one with the Godhead. But what I came to understand is that we look back and we can easily say, oh, well, this is a magical rite or this is magic by definition. But the ancient Greeks, they didn't view magic in the same way that we do. There wasn't a clear distinction, right? Right. Back in the ancient days, be it in Egypt, ancient Greece, the Mediterranean, and Persia, magic and religion coexisted. And that coexistence sort of blurs the line between how we identify what was magic in their culture and what was just, you know, normal, everyday religious practices. And that might explain also why 
uh, you find in some philosophers' works real condemnations of the practice mm-hmm. of magic on the one hand, but then in other places you'll find endorsements of, of practices that we today might label magic or theurgy. Right? Exactly. Because in, in some sense, you know, if they're condemning something, it's it's almost as though they're condemning a specific type of magic. You know? Exactly. And, Whereas in, in modern language, magic becomes kind of this blanket term that covers everything yeah. that uh, serves to, to influence the, the world through, yeah. well, what we might call magical means. <laughs> right, right. So, But that might if, not have been the way they think. That's That's how you... Yeah, they didn't separate things that way. You know, if you you look at it, you know, magic and religion, they both admit the existence of supernatural powers, right? Mm -hmm. They're both beyond pure materialism and acknowledge the supernatural. But religion requires no rationality, right? There's no practical goal in religion other than submission to those supernatural powers, Whereas in magic, the magician seeks to bend those supernatural powers to his own will, to his own interest. Philosophers often had an um, ambivalent relationship to fate. And I'm reminded of that as I hear you say this, because um, I think a lot of philosophers would have argued that you're not really meant to mess with fate. Mm-hmm. There are parts of fate that you really can and should not escape. Mm. that it would be almost sinful or, or wrongful to try and mess with certain things that really have been prescribed for you. And that's, again, yeah. a distinction between the religious viewpoint, which is very much one of accepting your fate, and, shall we say, on the other hand, the uh, viewpoint of the magician who really tries to modify and improve his fate, if you will, <laughs> yeah. through magical means. Exactly. And so when we when we look at history and we try to determine what was the magical aspect of ancient Greek culture? We have to try to understand, well, what did they consider to be above and beyond the will of the gods, right? What were the the rites that we may consider magical, but to them, they were actually just practicing the rites of their religion? And what aspects of the ancient Greek practice was truly bending the supernatural powers to their own will? Mm. And to do that, we have to sort of look at the words that they used to describe magic, right? When did the ancient Greeks first start talking in this way? Well, magic itself, right, the word comes from the Greek word magos, or the magi. And when we see the Greeks first speaking of this uh, term magus, or the magoi, the magus was first considered to be the pious Zoroastrian Persian priests, right? So they they looked at these priests from Persia, and they were regarded to have great wisdom in philosophy, in astrology, in magic, in theurgy. They seemed to have an understanding of all things theological. So even to the Greeks, these Zoroastrian Persian priests were seen to be very wise, and they gave them the term of the magus. And that then uh, later evolved to mean just someone who was generally wise. And then again, later, that was a specific type of wisdom pertaining to things such as astrology, magic, divination, and and those types of arts. So we see it originally evolving as a favorable term, right? Meaning these, these wise... Uh, sacred priests. Um, But 
in later times, particularly around the time of Plato, uh, we start to see the folk culture of Greece start to express a greater practice of what we would today maybe call sorcery. And these are the lower folk practices of magic, such as doing black magic to harm the enemies or creating those cursed tablets or creating, you know, waxen voodoo dolls, right? They would actually... Wait, did you say voodoo dolls? (laughs) Well, you know, clearly they weren't technically voodoo dolls, but they were waxen images of people that they would, you know, stick with needles and pens, or they would put them on graves or under doors. And of course, it was all for the nefarious purposes of of harming people. Mm Hmm. So just like we saw in the Egyptian society, where there was this almost uh, class of magician, right, where you would go to the magician and you would, you know, pay them for their services, that type of culture existed in ancient Greece as well. There were these folk magicians who their only type of profession was to aid people in various incantations and and charms and and spells and curses. And you know, this is very much like the magician class that evolved alongside the Tibetan Buddhists, right? There's also right. to this day a, a a class of Tibetan magicians that practice more of the older folk religions that aren't in line with Tibetan Buddhism, uh, but the Tibetan Buddhists still sometimes go see and seek out these magicians to aid them in such things as divination and exorcism and, and charms and things of that nature. So we see that type of folk magician for hire almost through all of these societies that we've analyzed so far and very prevalent in ancient Greece. Huh. So you might say that there were certain things that you would consult with an official from the from the sort of state religion or the city religion where you were in. And then there were other areas of life where you might be better off consulting one of these witch doctors, if you were. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, because okay. these are the people that are willing, and this is how sorcery began to get a bad rap, right? right. Maybe the bad rap it deserved, because they were great practitioners of demonology. You know, they performed incantations that were really designed to placate the demons. And demon comes from the Greek word daimon, which really just meant a disembodied soul or a spirit. So so when they talked about demons, they didn't talk about them as necessarily evil spirits. They might have seen them just as, as anything that didn't have corporeal being. That's true. It wasn't okay. necessarily like, you know, these are beings that come from hell, because that concept just didn't really exist. However, in practice, most of these demons or diamones were pretty nefarious, and they were called upon and many times required sacrifices and, and magical bonds. We see some rites in ancient Greece where these demons were called upon, they required sacrifice, and you had to swear allegiance to them in order for them to you know, do your bidding. Wow. We've come a long way, haven't we? <laughs> right. And this is where, you know, maybe some of our listeners have heard of the, the Goetia, and the Goetia, again, is 
from the Greek word goetia, which means wizardry. So we have yet another word beyond magos that had more of a negative connotation, right? Because these wizards who would practice this goetia not only were uh, working with these demons, but they combined it with these ecstatic states, you know, ritual lament and you know, they may do it for healing or divination, but always requiring sacrifices and this these states of ecstasy, you know, that you might associate with uh, the cults of Dionysus or, um, you know, the, the whirling dervishes or, or very various practices of shamanistic culture where, you know, working yourself up into an ecstatic state, either through the use of drugs or not, was part of the magic. Right. One of the aspects of these wizards or the practice of Goetia, these sorcerers, was that they began to develop rites that were said to make it possible to seek passage between the human and the divine worlds in accordance with the will of the magician. So rather than waiting for the gods to come to you, their idea was we can either call the gods to us or we can go towards the gods. We can enter into the same divine worlds. And as you can see, what happens is these practitioners become very unpredictable in society. It's hard to predict uh-huh. how they're going to react or how they're going to behave because at any moment they can you know, go into these ecstatic states of unpredictable behavior and start you know, spouting off divination and prophecy and uh, calling forth of, of demons. And so it, they really began to scare people. But at the same time, the people turned to them when they were in times of need because they were viewed to have great powers. And, you know, to me, Jason, this is almost an indication that what they were doing had to have some real measurable effect, right? Because while on one hand the people didn't approve of what they were doing. On the other hand, they would turn to them because they were so renowned for their success in these matters. When I studied the Old Testament, um, I saw a parallel here with the old uh, prophets, like the really, really old prophets. Um, I think some of them may very well have been ecstatic and erratic and Mm -hmm. uh, quite difficult to deal with. And, And you can see how the ancient uh, Jewish or Hebrew society made a special place for them, but kind of a little bit apart from society, but right. they still had an important place in order to uh, inform the king or or uh, inform the priests. But, you know, they were kind of put to their own little <laughs> right. devices. Right, at a distance. Exactly, yeah. 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 And the sort of unease with the magical culture just grew as the practices of the magician began to fork even further from the practices of the stately accepted practice of religion, right? So we see this clearly defined by Plato, who begins to take issue with the magician, uh, with the sorcerer, particularly in the Republic and in uh, the laws, you know, where Plato's distinguishing between magic and religion and that magic makes every effort to persuade the gods, whereas the truly religious behavior is to leave the gods a free choice, right? For they know better than we do what is good for us. 
Um, you know, that's interesting. I mean, we can't think of ancient Greek religion the way we think of modern religions today because they were not theistic in the mm-hmm. same way that modern religions are now. So ancient Greek religion, to my understanding, was very much a set of practices yeah. in order to not so much ask the gods for favors, but to really just keep them happy, to please them. Mm-hmm. Um, and worship was service yes. in, a, in a much greater way than it is today. And from the beginning, it was very much of a group thing. The religion of ancient Greece was a very um, social movement. It was not a movement of the individual. Yeah, An individual had very little to get out of the uh, practices of the religion. It was very much about keeping society stable and commemorating uh, the myths and uh, celebrating harvest and things of that nature. It was not so much about how do I gain personal salvation. But you don't see a lot of this in, in the writings of Plato and Socrates and, and Aristotle and, and the, the big big name philosophers. Mm-hmm. What they're talking about is something completely different. Right. They're, they're not talking about the folk religion. They're talking about reason and they're talking about philosophy as something quite distinct from, from the religious practices. Yeah, and they're very comfortable, at least in Plato's case, with having a state sanctioned and controlled religion. Because it keeps people orderly. You know, that was one of Plato's uh, main focuses, especially in, you know, the Republic, was how do you create the perfect ordered society? Some of those ideas (laughs) are really weird if you read them. (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, and we can see that Plato's gripe with the magician, with the sorcerer, as as he calls them, um, the the practitioners of Goetia, Uh it's not a gripe on religious grounds, you know, although Plato does express that um, the magician doesn't acknowledge the existence of the gods like ordered society should, because otherwise they would submit themselves to the wills of the god instead of trying to exert their own will. But his gripe with them is that they're so unpredictable and that they create disorder in society. Huh. I think also what Plato is talking about here is that the sorcerers, as he calls them, are dealing with beings, the daemons or the archons, probably in his language, mm-hmm. um, that all emanate from this lower god, the demiurge, right. the god of this world. Whereas he and all of the great philosophers had their minds set on the creator god, yeah. the unknowable, but but still approachable God, right? Yeah. So why would a true practitioner of philosophy, which is, you know, if you face it, his audience, yeah. why would they want to uh, have anything to do with this lower deity? Yeah, yeah. And, right? and, and it creates, you know, increasing discomfort in, in their view of how society should run. Right, right. So where we see Plato and other philosophers and statesmen of the day taking issue with the magicians, with the sorcerers, because of their uh, discord in society and in an ordered society, we also see them taking issue uh, because of this idea that they are trying to control nature through their own wills rather than submitting to the will of the gods. You know, that would be the theological argument. And, you know, we see this argument even to this very day, right? If you were to to go to a true faithful religious person who views magic as 
as evil and dark because, you know, they read it somewhere that all magic was a sin. You ask them, well, why? And they're going to most likely recount this argument. Well, Mm. but think of this, right? This is what I found interesting. This is the exact same argument against science early on, right? Right. Right. All scientific progress was disputed in theological circles because it was viewed of trying to control nature. And to control nature to the will of man was to subvert the will of the divine. Um, But for most people, you know, it seems that we have grown beyond that argument where science is concerned, yet when it comes to this divine science or the divine art of controlling your environment through higher forces, through higher spiritual and divine forces, um, you know, they still want to to use that argument. That's very interesting. I've, I've met that same argument myself, and, and I've had to struggle with it in my own life as well you know, facing those those very same questions. Yeah. In the end, I kind of decided that it's it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's all good. Well, you know, we do see that there were reasons for concern, right? A lot of these magicians and sorcerers were sinister, right? I mean, everything I've mentioned so far seems pretty devious, right? Curses and voodoo dolls and, and binding spells and making people fall in love with you. I mean, this does seem to be a little bit devious um, right? Yeah. for the spiritual seeker of the light. But we forget another aspect of the Greek religion, which was in parallel to the, the more folk practices of sorcery. And this was that of malevolent magic, right? The magic that was viewed as being parallel to the will of the gods, right? Magic that was done for positive purposes. And we see these various malevolent magics as practiced in the various mystery cults, right? You have the the Bacchic mystery cults and the Dionysian mystery cults of ecstatic natures, and we see their rites of purification and just various malevolent sorcery, right? Malevolent magic. Right. These were not pious movements, you know, by modern standards, not at all, right? They were they were quite rock and roll. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But at the same time, they were seeking a greater good for society and for man, but many times through the spiritual path of the individual, right? Right. And I think there's a movement here from this older form of religion, which was something that was done in the masses, to a more and more individualized uh, form of practice. And that's yeah. that's exactly when, when this type of uh, clash starts to happen. Am I correct? Yes. And so we still see the clash now because on the one hand, you know, you have this folk class of sorcerers who were being basically cast down by the state and there were various laws that were being passed against their practices. So this malevolent branch of the Magi, they had to go underground, right? They had to teach one another in secret, because to do so out in the open was to become subject to the same laws that the folk shaman or the folk sorcerer was subject to. So in secret, they began, you know, initiating people into their rites, into their mysteries, into their greater, higher teachings that really were designed 
to take a person and evolve them spiritually, right? To, to gain access to the divine world and to use that access as a tool uh, in the world of man. Hmm. That's very interesting. So initiation really was the entry into the path of becoming a practitioner. Mm-hmm. And we see various patterns in these initiatic paths, and especially you know, those who were seeking a path to become a true magi, right? The true magus, not in the sense of of the folk sorcerer who is going to, you know, work with demons and cast spells to make people fall in love or, or to curse your neighbor, but rather the type of magus who was going to learn the higher forces of the universe and learn to direct them and to evolve their spiritual nature, to, to gain access to higher knowledge that even philosophy couldn't provide. So what do we know about these rites of initiation? So we, do we have any accounts on what might have happened? Well, we see a lot of them parallel uh, the Egyptian rites of initiation, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, for instance, Pythagoras was said to, to bury himself in a tomb for a time and, and return to prove that there was life after death. Right and and this idea of but did he die in the tomb? Um, well, you know, or did he just kind of step out would, again? I think the the legend is that yes, he 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 died in the tomb, but it's huh. more of you know that rite of the mystery, right? Taken from okay. the Egyptians who were who were seen to take the body, bury it in a tomb, and then that body was was believed by the Egyptians to exist on after death. Well, okay, I don't, I don't take that as actual physical evidence of life after death, but <laughs> I could understand that from a from initiatic perspective and, and, and the, the experience of going through that uh, exercise will have a, surely a profound effect on the practitioner who goes right. through and it. And, and, and the person who goes in will most likely be very, very changed to the point that they're almost a different person when they come out again. Oh, definitely. And, I, and yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, the people surrounding him, they probably believe that he truly did die. And, uh, and at least go, in some spiritual sense, in some spiritual sense, um, or you know, depending on their belief system, maybe they thought he, he really died. Um, now, you know, and we also see that um, you know various oracles needing to go through a similar initiatic process, right? You have the oracle of the Trophonius, you know, in Boeotia, who performed various ritual journeys into the netherworld before they were able to obtain the answers of the oracular hero, right? The, the hero of the oracle who would go through the underworld and, and speak to the spirits or to the gods that resided there and come back with the information they were seeking. Hmm, hmm. Um, so this story, uh, as played out by these oracles, um, became initiatic rites that those seeking to become magicians, those seeking to become oracles... Uh, would go through similar journeys, either in a psychodramatic sense, right, where they would act out uh, legends and and mysteries, many times even from the stories of Homer, right? They would... Right, yeah. I think those stories were, were meant to be practiced. Yeah, they were meant to be practiced, and through practicing them, through walking the same path in some sense it was said that they now could take that experience and gain wisdom of a deeper and higher nature of the mysteries that underlined 
the mythology or the initiatic uh, event. But from what I can gather, it was almost as though it was viewed as necessary for these initiates to undergo this journey. Because remember, what they're seeking is audience with the gods. Because to the ancients, the realm of magic belonged to the gods. And so to acquire magic, one was said to need initiation to gain that god's favor, right? So, for instance, if I was seeking the powers of the god Hermes, I would have to undergo the sacred rite of initiation played out by the mythology of Hermes in order to align myself in understanding with his greater mystery in order to earn the right and authority to practice the powers of magic that he had to give me. I think that's a very important point, and I think it explains some of the strange elements of Greek mythology, um, that a lot of these stories were meant to be played out. They were not meant to be read or just talked about around the campfire under the mm-hmm. you know starry night. They were really meant to be practiced. And you might say that if an element of a story does not lend itself to ritual, over time, unless it's written down, it will probably disappear or transform into some other form which does lend itself to be played out. You know, funny you should mention the the transformation, because interestingly, we see this pattern in all of these mystery schools, in all these schools that sought to gain favor with the gods, that sought to gain power of the gods through these special rites of initiation that were maybe not accessible to all of the citizens of the day. What we find as a pattern in these rites is one of a necessity for purification. There's a purification process, perhaps a rebirthing process. And then there is this aspect of once you are purified and you're reborn, sort of reborn under the sign of that deity, then you are enabled these special gifts right, these magical powers. But does that sound familiar to you, Jason, uh, with any rites that modern man might practice? I mean, it's one thing to look back and say, oh, well, they were these really crazy mystical Greeks. Uh, It's a good thing that we've evolved beyond that superstition. (laughs) Well, I think I know what you're getting at, but especially for me, having had my my baptism as an adult, you know, I'm reminded of those rites and 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 all of the, the the Christian celebrations that we really do as reenactments of the story that is written in the Gospels. I, I think that's why you're heading with this. Yeah, that, and it's right? not just Christianity. You know, the concept no, no. of baptism and the concept of confirmation can be seen in some form in many modern religions of the day. Where clearly it was present in the day of Jesus, for example. Yeah, and and it was not a novel concept when John the Baptist came around. He wasn't the first. Right. We see it now, and I, I just didn't know this, right? We see it in these ancient Greek mystery schools huh. that borrowed it from the Egyptians. So the concept of baptism, right? You dedicate yourself to the god or deity of that religion, and that provides a purification and a rebirth what do you know? in the line of that deity. That is so cool. And then later on, sometimes at the same time for, for some religions, there's a confirmation where you have confirmed and received to the fullest that transformation. And we see that 
even in the Christian religions, who usually look down uh, upon the practice of supernatural powers, upon confirmation, it's said that they gain special gifts from the Holy Spirit, right? Anything right. from right. wisdom. Some of which included casting out demons and, and other things. That yeah, healing, right? speaking yeah. in tongues, prophecy. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. these were the very magical powers, the gifts of the Magi, that these mystery schools were seeking through gaining right. favor with the gods. Huh. So, again, the formula is one of purification, of rebirth, aligning yourself with the deity, and through that higher wisdom, then a reception of some type of higher supernatural power. But where it seems that in ancient Greek culture, there is a difference from, say, those practices today, or those of us who are initiated into the path of the the sacred magic of light, the difference, to me at least, seems to be that in ancient Greece, they oftentimes merely align themselves in these schools under a specific deity to gain magic powers, and that was their true intention all along. Whereas I believe, you know, later on, these mysteries evolve to where the actual seeking of the magical power is not the motivating force, but almost a side effect. Um, But that comes later. Well, I think in many ways, the seeking of power is the point of entry into the sacred magical arts. And, And only later do you develop into seeking a more pious outlook on life right. and 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 more of a mentality of divine union. Yeah. I think a lot of people who enter into mystery schools at any age and time um, do so for very specific reasons, but that those reasons are often found to fall away as you discover the true nature of initiation and the true gifts that it carries with it. Yeah, and that comes, I think, as these mysteries evolved when... This line of initiation, this line of learning these higher spiritual practices, um, began to merge uh, much with the ancient Greek philosophers who were parallel to them in their concepts of the cardinal virtues, you know, the virtues described by Plato and Aristotle. And it's when these rites and the magic is aligned with virtue that we see a true culmination and a reunification between the magics of the ancients and the theological pious practices of the devout. It's interesting also that a lot of the philosophers talk about magic um, and the good magic now, you know, the magic that they didn't condemn. They talk about that magic as something for the beginner, something for those who are just starting out on their magical journey or on their their journey uh, of of divine ascent, if you will. But at some point, that particular type of of supplication to the gods and and the, the, the yearning and the need to change her fate is replaced by a very, very deep yearning for philosophy, for knowledge, for what we might might call gnosis, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And that the higher philosophy and the higher wisdom and the attainment of this uh, experience of the divine replaces the urges of, of the natural man, if you will. Yeah, that is very well said. And that might also explain some of the friction between 
the magical practitioners and the philosophers mm. and and sort of the the state sanctioned uh, religion mm-hmm. and of the time. It's very interesting that you know even the the philosophical the theological arguments that we can pose against ourselves in the practice of you know magic and reconciling that with uh, spirituality the same strife that exists in that rectification existed back at the time of the ancient Mm -hmm. Greeks. They were actually living out the tension that existed between the magician and the pious practice of religion or of spirituality. Um, So it, it really is fascinating to me, looking at the ancient Greeks, to see how much it really does apply to us today. It really does. And and it also goes to show that although there were magicians and magical practices back in ancient Greece, I think st- still everyone had a spiritual pursuit of some sort. It was not necessarily um, a search for material gain alone. Yeah. And that, I think, is something that we can take away also as modern magicians and practitioners um, and philosophers, I suppose, is that if you are going to divulge into these matters, you, you're going to have to enter into areas of religion and areas of, of theology. Otherwise, you will not reach as deeply as you might otherwise be able to do. And that a practitioner of the magical arts which really are the sacred arts, must have an appreciation for that which is sacred. Amen. Can I have a witness? <laughs> Can I have a witness? Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> hey, you know, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you, everyone, for bearing with us and taking this journey into the land of ancient Greece. I think we all learned something today. And for those of you who may know a lot more about this period of history than ourselves, uh, please feel free to add your comments, your corrections, your criticisms, your enlightened perspectives to the comments section on our blog uh, at ChasingHermes.com. And also, uh, I'd like to add that to commemorate the uh, one-year anniversary of Chasing Hermes, we are now going to be on Facebook uh, upon popular request. Yay! So it's still very much in its uh, sort of starting blocks, but uh, if you check out on Facebook in the next couple of days or weeks, I'm sure you'll find us there. Cool. Become a fan. Chasing Hermes podcast. Spread the word. Spread the word. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Visit our website at www.chasinghermes.com or send us an email at info at To inquire about the Western mystery tradition, please visit www.western-mysteries.com.